Can you hear me? Can you? Yeah. I'm a low talker. Oh, there we go. Now I can hear myself. So James is writing to the church that's been dispersed because of hardship and persecution. That's who he's writing to. And in particular, you can make a case that he's writing to the leaders of the church because of the way that they have responded to the persecution that they've experienced. You can go all the way through chapter 1 to chapter 4, seeing the critiques that James has. We're going to see, I think, another one, an unexpected one, maybe, uh, that we come to in James chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. Would you go ahead and stand together with me for the reading of God's Word? James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word that you speak to us. We thank you that you speak. Pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, that you would take this word and that you would do what you have planned to do, what you intend to do with it. Father, we pray that you would convict us. We pray that you would comfort us. We pray that you would strengthen us by it. Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would kill us with it and that you would raise us up. We pray that you would do this for us this morning, not just for us, but for all your people that gather to hear from you and worship. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Mm. 
In answer to the question, what is persecution like? Here's one response. And this is in particular in the context of, of Afghanistan. It is impossible to live openly as a Christian in Afghanistan. Leaving Islam is considered shameful, and Christian converts are forced to flee the country or be killed. Another quick quote. This is, comes from a, an Afghan believer. How we survive daily, only God knows. He has been kind, but we are tired of all the deaths. James speaks into that. James speaks to those realities, not just the realities of Afghanistan. I mean, that's, that's been going on a lot of places in the world for a really long time. James speaks to it. Certainly, he teaches us how to pray for our brothers and sisters there. Maybe more than that, he shows us what we desperately need, the Spirit to teach us about suffering and persecution. Now, to see how James does that, I want, us, I want to take us through real quick some snippets from Acts. Because I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm gonna try to approach James um, 1 through 8 um, through a different lens. And let me just say this, okay, I'm going to try not to be um, cranky. So I, I get, I get that James is talking to rich people in this passage. Okay. I hope, I mean, and if you want to send me an email and tell me I missed it, that's fine. <laughs> I read a lot of different comments on James 5, different sermons, and everybody talks about, you know, rich, and I, I get that. Uh, that is an issue. Certainly that's an issue. Um, I hope it doesn't appear that I'm somehow dodging something, that I'm, you know, trying to not to make rich people mad in the West and all that stuff. Okay? But I think something bigger is going on in this passage. I think something that there is, some, there's a larger story that's happening in James 5. So let me just say this, okay? We'll just do this with Rich. If you've got a lot of money, how about this? Don't defraud people. Don't live in self-indulgence. And don't kill nobody. There we go. Don't be dumb. Right? But I think there's, some, I think there's more going on here. 
hopefully, and I could be wrong, but hopefully, I think that maybe this will give us a run-up to this. Okay, so Acts chapter 4, and I'm just going to hit on different pieces here. Acts chapter 4. In this passage, I'll just start. And as they were speaking to the people, that is the apostles, here's what happened. The priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, they came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And you know what they did? Here's what they did. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Okay, jump ahead. Verse 5 of chapter 4. On the next day, their rulers and the elders and the scribes, they gathered together in Jerusalem. Right? They wanted to sort of take care of this business. And then if we jump to verse 18, I'm just hitting the big players. So they called them, that is the Sadducees and all these Jewish leaders, they called them the apostles, and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then verse 21 And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. You get that? They had threats, and they wanted to punish them for proclaiming Jesus. Got it? Chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles, this is because they were preaching and teaching, and put them in the public prison. And then the apostles, in verse 33, a little bit later, the apostles, they come out and they're sort of facing these guys, and what do they do? They preach the gospel. That makes them really mad, and here they, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And then in verse 40, And when they called the apostles, they found out they were out there doing it again. They called them back. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. Jump ahead. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. And Stephen, full of grace and power. Remember, Stephen was one of the Oh, Stephen was a deacon, so I don't know if this is bad news for the deacons here, but Stephen, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Yay! Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, right? They had a, a vigorous argument. And they stirred up, in this verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council. And you know what Stephen said? I mean, he gave a nice history, a brief history of what had gone on among the people of Israel, and then he ends it with this, right? Something that I... I'm sure you would all expect to garner praise and pats on the back. He said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You know what then they did? They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Fast forward to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, right? Saul approved of Stephen's execution. 
And then chapter 9, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Excuse me, belonged to the church. You know what he did? He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Acts chapter 13, verses 40. Four to five. This is about after Paul's conversion. It says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And first four, chapter 14, verses 1 to 2. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, that is, Paul and Barnabas, and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. In verse 19, But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Wow! Being a Christian is great. Right? Do you see how this this is such a hard passage to preach? Because I have to say at the outset, and I would imagine some of you do, that I am talking way bigger than I actually am. struggle with this passage because I don't know that I know the first thing about persecution for following Christ. Now, that is not me saying that you don't know the first thing about persecution. You may indeed know. I can tell you I don't know. So I drag all of these passages from Acts in so you could just get a picture. This is the context of the church. I bring it up, too, because, you know, just roughly, Stephen's death, by tradition, supposed to have taken place around 36 A.D. Right? The stuff with Paul and Damascus Road, right? Remember, he's on his way to go round up some Christians and kill them, drag them back. 37, roughly. And James... He's killed, tradition-wise, around 44. Realistic case could be made for James being written at 47. That's the case, right? 
That's three years after James, the brother of John, was killed. We've still got this stuff going. In fact, remember, after Stephen was killed, the great persecution scattering the church, that's the dispersion that James is riding into. That's the context. That's the momentum that we could make an argument for. That is the world that James sends these first eight verses of chapter 5 into. And the way that he does it, and this is sort of one kind of clue right off the bat, you sort of read chapter 5, and if you've been reading, you know, just through the Bible and the prophets very long, it's not hard to see how James, he sounds exactly like an Old Testament prophet here. And he sounds exactly like Jesus. I think that's going to sort of go into what I'm trying to suggest is going on here. He's going to tell us what is wrong, what's happening to these rich folks in the first few verses. Let me read those again. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Yuck! These miseries that he describes, the way that he describes them. But given the context, the sort of big picture that we've painted, the rich that he's speaking to, not just any old rich, these are wicked rich. And if this is in any way consistent with what we've been seeing in Acts already, the best, great candidate for this are going to be these Jewish oppressors. Certainly not, I'm not suggesting that you didn't have uh, uh, peasant workers that are being defrauded. I'm not saying that's not the case. I'm saying that that is embedded in a larger story that imports significance to this. It's not just about rich folks treating poor folks bad. It's a story that has more to say. These are the folks in power. In fact, James seems to sort of set these folks in the context of this long tradition. Going back to Jesus' time, right? The Jewish leaders, they had the temple. They had the treasury. They were the rich. Jesus was constantly setting himself in opposition to them because of how they mistook these blessings of God, these covenantal blessings, for something else. 
when he says the, the he uses the terms wrath. I mean rat. I mean rot, rot, moth, and rust. This sounds like Jesus. From Matthew chapter six. Remember what he said there. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus was indicting the people of Israel. It wasn't just treasures in general. It was these treasures that God has given you that point you to him and what he's doing that he's now doing in me that you've entirely missed and undermined. They held on to those instead of running to him. And as I mentioned, he sounds like the prophets. Micah 7 Referring to leaders in Jerusalem, he took bribes, twisted justice. It says, therefore, I will take away their goods as a devouring moth and as one who acts by a rigid rule in the day of visitation. Woe, woe, thy times of vigence are come. Now shall be their lamentations. Or Hosea 5. Right. They took the provision of God, the gold and silver, and they used it for their own desires. And he says in verse 11, <clears throat> Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, like dry rot to the house of Judah. Passages like those show that the moth and the rot point to God's judgment. James is playing on those metaphors. He's saying that their treasures aren't going to lead to life. The pressure, those treasures are going to lead to judgment. And in verses 4 and 5, he gets to why. Verse 4, he says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by, by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Note again that it's not just what James says happened, but the way that he says it happened. And if Jesus' words are rolling around in his head... I think that they may inform how we understand or the full import of what James says here. Those particular words, wages, laborers, fields, harvest. How does Jesus use those? Again, within the context of the same story, of God working out His purposes in the context of opposition to a people from whom He came. For them. How does He do this? Listen to this. Verse 
this is James, uh, I mean, excuse me, this is in John. After his discussion with the Samaritan woman, right? Remember the disciples bring Jesus food. And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Or Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, after, or excuse me, after this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was, uh, was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Here Jesus speaks in metaphorical terms. Harvest is certainly the world, but more specifically Israel to begin with. The harvesters are the ones that Jesus is sending out, the apostles, and then more generally, the believers, the church. The wages... Interestingly in this, are those who, are, who would be gathered into the kingdom. You've got the harvesters and then you've got the wages. Those who are coming into the kingdom. And obviously the hospitality offers, offered to the harvesters. How does that shape our understanding of James? Well, from one standpoint, in what these, these rich were doing, and this goes all the way back to James 2. Remember what he said there about partiality? What was happening then when the rich happened to come in? The problem was, is let's give them the better seat. Poor guy gets pushed to the side. Almost like the strategy at that point of dealing with the oppressor was to pander. Come on, come on. Come on. Because right, remember, James said in chapter 2, what are you, aren't these the guys that are dragging you into court? Condemning you? Dishonoring the name? think that James is doing something similar here. These Jewish oppressor, oppressors 
have refused to pay the harvesters their wages. They refuse to listen to the proclamation of the gospel. And they refuse to, or they stand as sort of, sort of blocks to the growth of the kingdom. Just like, just like in the gospels, they're like those who refuse to listen to Jesus. They refuse to listen to the apostles. They refuse to listen to this church that James is writing to. And these, these, these cries come out to God. That's, that's, what, that's what makes the difference, I guess, here in this passage. The cries stand like rust as a testimony. This crying is like the cry of Abel. Remember that? Abel's blood cries out to God. It's like Israel crying out under the oppression in Egypt. These cries come up to God seeking vindication, seeking redemption for themselves judgment for their enemy. Five and six, James says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. He closes the proclamation of judgment with accusations of self-indulgence, but then this, that that last accusation. You have murdered the righteous one. Singular. I mean, it could be, certainly could be a corporate kind of singular entity. Who is this? Again, this fits into the story that the Bible has been telling, and we've certainly been telling from the prophets, but then certainly in the Gospels and in Acts. We've already seen they murdered Stephen. They murdered James, son of Zebedee. We know they murdered John. And of course, they murdered Jesus. James seems to be setting these rich in that line of Jewish oppressors and this church cast in that role of those following God, the people of God, pressed down. So in James 5, 1 through 6, he makes clear to his readers what will happen to the oppressor. And that's the other interesting thing here. And again, this is like the prophets, right? The prophets often, they would speak to these nations that wouldn't hear what they had to say. 
James is writing about these people who, if they stand in opposition to the church, more than likely, they're not going to be there to hear what's going to happen to them. Why say it? What is it supposed to do for them? What does he call them to? What's interesting is that James doesn't call them to zealotry. I mean, in fact, an argument can be made that that's exactly what he is criticizing the leaders in the church already for doing. I mean, when James said that, well, I think, I think Jason mentioned it. When James says, you know, you, you, you know, because of your desires and your passions, you know, you fight and quarrel, right? And you murder. And we always kind of go, yeah, you treat people bad because of your desires and passions. And, you know, considered, what if James is going, no, 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 you really kill people. James is saying, that's a problem. Jesus didn't call you to be a zealot. He called you to something different. And in 7 and 8, we see the difference. James 5, 7 through 8, he says, in response to this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James exhorts his readers, he exhorts us, with a promise. It is kind of funny when you think about it. You look at this whole line of what has happened to the church in Acts. Beaten, stoned, chased out, Think about this. This quote. How we survive daily, only God knows. He has been kind, but we're tired of all the deaths. And James, knowing that, what does he say? Be patient. He's, he says, be patient. How does that work? Let me say it. Let me say, James, let me say it again. I'm, I'm tired of all the deaths. And James says, be patient.
I mean, this is, this is what I don't get, I think. I think this is, where, this is where the friction happens. This is where it gets hard, where it's, it's, I know that I don't know what I'm talking about when in response to I'm tired of all the deaths, I struggle with be patient. See, I could go with the zealotry, the zealotry thing. Let's go kill somebody back. Is that too much? I think it's, it's hard, and we have to ask ourselves questions. We have to ask ourselves questions. When somehow either this, this, somehow this doesn't, this doesn't make sense to us. It tells us something about what we believe. It tells us something about how we deal with suffering. James calls us to patience, standing up. Under provocation. Those are the common tones that go with patience, right? Restraint. Standing up. Staying where you are in the face of what's happening. Waiting as opposed to running, taking off. Holding up. Holding up as opposed to letting it go. That's patience. But he sets that patience in a context. He sets it in 7 and 8, right? in an until and because of. And I think both give some hope. He says, be patient until the Lord comes. That until is an until of expectation. It marks a sort of end to this. Right? I mean, y'all have experienced that. I mean, there are some things that you can do for a long time that are really hard if you know there's an end to it. And that's what James is saying here. It marks an end to the suffering. It says, he's saying that God is saying, I see you. I see what's happening to you. And what I'm telling you is I know what's going on, and here's where I'm going to cut it off. Which that sort of gets into the because of. In verse 8, he calls them to patience because of the Lord's coming, or for the Lord is coming. We stand up, we wait, we hold up, 
because the Lord's coming is at hand. There is a nearness and a certainty to it. I mean, and I don't, I mean, I don't think that James is just making stuff up. I think he's taking Jesus seriously. I mean, good case can be made, and lots of folks talk about this. And I mean, it's hard to read James, I mean, Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about the temple, and he says, in this generation, some bad stuff is going to go down. Well, they took him at that word. Hey, this isn't going to last forever. I mean, in hindsight, right, destruction of Jerusalem, we can see where some of that stuff went down. But he holds that out. He doesn't just say, hey, your suffering's going to come to an end. He says, the Lord is coming. That presupposes some things, obviously. That presupposes that it's not just simply the end of suffering that matters, but that the Lord himself is the one who will end it. That that matters. That he's coming. And in between the until and the because of, James gives an analogy. And ironically, it's about a farmer. <laughs> the farmer, he says in the analogy, waits, anticipates with expectancy the fruit of the ground. And he's waiting until the early and latter rains. And, you know, and then commentators will say, yeah, it's probably talking about the, partly it's talking about the, you know, the, the weather and agricultural, you know, patterns in Palestine, which, you know, I, I mean, but there, I mean, that has a bigger meaning if you're looking at the sweep of the story of redemption, Deuteronomy 11, right? The, the early, late rains, that comes from God. It's the provision from God. It is the sign of His blessing, covenantal blessings. You're my people. I'm your God. Here's how you know. Boom. And then later in the prophets in Joel, God's people are oppressed. The early, late rains, what those are a cue to is the restoration, redemption. Vindication, defeat of enemies, exaltation of God's people. So James says, you be patient until the Lord comes. You be patient because he is coming for sure soon. And when he comes, he'll vindicate you. Justice will be done. Trust me. Look to me. Let me end with this. What does it look like to be patient? I'll read what I left out in those Acts passages real quick. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. 
This is after the apostles come out, the chief, remember the, the chief priests, all those guys. They were like, well, we don't have any reason to beat you. We can't really punish you, so just don't do this again. And they let him go. You know, and they came out. You know what they did? You know what the people did? It's interesting. They didn't say, what are, what are we going to do? Those guys. Look what, they almost, they almost, they almost beat you. Here's what, they, here's what it says. And when they, the, the, the people, heard it, they lifted their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, um, who through the mouth, excuse me, through, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. This is Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then they said this in 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord... They just dragged these guys in. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. All right. Chapter 5. Verse 41 to 42. Now this is, um, this is after. This is after they got beat. Right? So they came close to getting beat. They didn't get beat. You might go, oh, well, see, they didn't get beat. They're all right. Right? They're still high step. All right, we'll see what happened after they got beat. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching the Christ is Jesus. And then chapter 7, chapter 7, old Stephen what does, seven, what does Stephen do? Right? Stephen. Now, their folks sort of gather around. They see those guys get beat. You might say, oh, it's easy for them. You see those guys get beat, and you go, Lord, thank you. You're the best, Lord Jesus. Get rid well, what does the guy who got beat do? Hmm. This will mess you up. And as they were stoning Stephen, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. I don't know anything about that. Do you? 
This scares me to death. See, this kind of stuff makes me go, do I believe in Jesus? Really? This kind of stuff shakes us. Acts 14. Now I'll just end with Paul because he'll be anticlimactic because everybody says, well, Paul's just, he's just mean and tough. Paul's, what happened to him? What did he do? Right? Okay, and this is kind of comical. I mean, in a bad way. Right? Paul got stoned, dragged him out of the city. They thought he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, entered the, listen to this, what this fool does. He rose up, entered the city, and on the next day went on with Barnabas to Derbe. You know what they did? And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls. Paul could have said, are you, I just, I was almost dead. No, I am not going back. You are out of your mind. Okay. We could say, well, those are the Bible people. Of course they do that. Okay. Here's a mother of two from Pakistan. We celebrate knowing that at any time a suicide bomber can come and disrupt our... She says disrupt. <laughs> a suicide bomber can come and disrupt our worship, our praying. And then I think, will it really be disrupted or will I be sent into the fullness of worship? There are those among these isolated, persecuted Christians who have memorized Scripture. They teach it to those around them on the brick-making fields as they are not able to go to church or attend gatherings. Here's another Afghan Christian. We're not afraid, but strong and hopeful. Listen to what they say. We know he will come again. That is why there is so much pain and suffering. That is, where, that is why there is persecution. He is coming back, and those who do not know him need him in their lives. For now, we, his followers, need to live with thankful, prayerful hearts. And then a Sudanese pastor they can burn our church buildings, but they cannot burn the church from our hearts. Now, please hear me. I don't read those quotes just for pathos, right? And I certainly don't read those quotes to just celebritize, whatever that to make celebrities of people who are suffering. I read those quotes so that you can hear that there are real people 
real Christians who are going through really devastating persecution that actually believe this stuff. To whom that he is coming again makes a difference. A real difference. Are doing, and James calls his readers, and he's calling us to follow our Savior in this. First Peter two. Peter says he committed no sin; neither was he neither neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? What was this display of patience? What fueled Jesus' patience? But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. My prayer. is that our Father, by His Spirit, would shape us into the kind of people that believe this stuff. Shape us into the kind of people for whom this means the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. We thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would teach us the grammar of suffering. Teach us what it means to be the kind of people that hold fast to you in the midst of suffering, in the onslaught of persecution. It is so hard for us to stand where we are and know that. so easy for us to stand where we are and miss how others are coming to know it. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters around this world who are experiencing the kind of violent persecution that we see the church has always experienced. Would you, would you continue to strengthen your people? with your word, would you continue to build them up, build into them a confidence, an expectancy, and a hope in you that will preserve them and carry them. 
pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Lord's Supper, go ahead and open that. There's a sense in which we are waiting for the harvest of the fruit. We're still anticipating the coming of Jesus. And yet our patience is strengthened. Our power to persevere comes as we taste that fruit now in this bread and this cup. 1 Corinthians Paul says, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This is, this, excuse me, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take and eat. Take and drink. Again, Father, we Thank you for this token, this supper that you've given to us. We thank you, Lord God, that we know by your promise that you show up here in our worship, in the proclamation of the word, and you show up here as we eat, you show up here at table with us. And Father, we praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you that you would strengthen us by these gifts. That we would know, that we would feel the certainty of that reality that is as surely as we eat and as surely as we drink. We belong to you and you belong to us. Grant to us all that Christ has won for us as your people. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.